my guest today, Adam Schmalholz, is also known as NQ. In fact, he's probably more publicly known by that. He is a national poetry slam champion, award-winning poet, and multi-platinum songwriter. He was named to Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of the world's most influential thought leaders, first spoken word artist to perform with Cirque du Soleil, and has been featured everywhere from A&E, ESPN, HBO's Poetry Def Jam, and inspired audiences around the world through live performances and storytelling workshops where he invites people to step into their own poetry and to own it and to become brave and vulnerable and share. Many of his recent poetry videos have also gone viral with, I don't know, something like 70, 80, 90, probably at this point over 100 million views combined. He grew up in Venice, California and really immersed himself in the world of hip hop and rap in the early days writing and freestyling and rap battles before finding his place in the poetry scene in LA, becoming a weekly regular at the Poetry Lounge for nearly 15 years while building his skills and voice and presence and supporting himself writing songs for megastars like Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, and so many others. Now his first book of poems, Inquire Within, is out. I am super excited to have him on the show. And He's also performing a number of his spoken word pieces that kind of weave in and out of the conversation. You will not want to miss this deeply personal conversation, along with the chance to be swept away by the beauty and power of his performances. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So we're actually just fresh back from three weeks on the road ourselves and the last chunk of it spent in Santa Monica, which mm. you know well. That's where I'm from. Yeah. <laughs> Stomping grounds. Where were you? We were actually staying down in Venice, like right on the edge of Venice and sort of like the south part of Santa Monica. That's literally where I'm from. Is it really? Yeah, Bay Street and Lincoln. And when you were coming up in that area, what was it like then? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. No one's ever asked me that question. And if I ever say, oh, I'm from Santa Monica, they just automatically assume whatever you know it was interesting my mother was a a single parent uh she was a school teacher uh we were raised in a little rent control apartment and uh you know amazing neighborhood in terms of diversity felt like i could you know even now to this day get along with anyone from anywhere you know any economic background you know uh, I just usually feel very comfortable connecting right away. And I think that was based on my upbringing. Yeah. I mean, Venice Beach then, and even now to a certain extent, although Times Square back then was sort of this place where just like mayhem was going on at the time. Right. And Venice Beach felt oddly similar to me back then. Yeah. It feels a little bit the same still these days, but then like you step a block off and everything feels different. You've got like Abbott Kinney. It's sort of like, okay, so now I'm in you know, like Park Slope, Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Venice, uh, you know, it's an amazing place to live because you can't beat the lifestyle. But um, it's definitely kind of an amusement park for adults these days. Yeah. And uh, it's a bit of a bubble. Yeah. You know? um, I know eventually you get into spoken word and, and actually the entree for that for you is, is more the musical route. What filled you up when you were a kid? So like before you found that, because it also sounds like I know you've heard Heard you talk about the fact that you shared, you grew up, your mom was a single mom, mm-hmm. um, didn't know your dad when you were younger, but also you've 
spoken about the fact that you, you had a lot of rage as a kid. I think I had a lot of emotion as a kid. I had okay. a lot of anger. I had a lot of sadness. And I didn't really have an outlet for that. What was it about? Like, what was the genesis? I think I always felt like I was observing myself from the outside looking in. You know, when you are raised without a father, I think oftentimes you look outside of yourself for what you're supposed to be. You know, there's not that sense of security and identity. Um, and my mom did an amazing job raising me, but there was still that absence. And uh, I think ultimately I turned to art to fill that space. Yeah. Music was, sounds like the, the entree to that, or was it other forms of art or expression? Um, you know, I fell in love with hip hop when I was like 13 years old. Yeah. And I just absolutely, uh, I think was attracted to the purity of the expression. And I started to freestyle like very naturally, like on my own and freestyling, I would say it was my first form of meditation, you know, because when you're freestyling, you can't think about anything else, but the next word or the next rhyme. And so it really drops you into the moment. And it's an avenue for getting out all of those thoughts and emotions that are unexpressed. Whether you're doing it on your own or you're doing it in a cipher or you're battling somebody, there's this immediacy, you know, that brings you into the moment like nothing else can. And uh, that was something that, that became an addiction to me. And at, at that time, it was really my religion. Yeah. Describe what freestyling is for those who don't know what you're talking about. Freestyling is just when you start to speak and, you know, you almost are like on the train and building the train tracks at the same time, you know, but you're rhyming. So yeah. we're sitting in a chair right here about to light like a flare, blow into the atmosphere. It's crystal clear like a chandelier. I can steer this in any direction, not perfection, but you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's like that type of thing. You just start and whatever comes, comes, you know, and it's not something that I do very often at all anymore, but at the time it was necessary for me. And, yeah. you know, it, it really like shaped, I would say my younger artistic life. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting also because there's, um, the idea of sitting down uh, with an idea or a theme or a story and crafting language and refining it and refining it and then practicing it and then making it so, you know, like if and when you step up and share this with the world, you feel like you've got it dialed in versus freestyling is like the exact opposite. Um, yeah. And yet at the same time, I wonder if, you know, there's a story about, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, famous I Have a Dream speech mm -hmm. and how halfway through that, he was going in one direction, but Mahalia Jackson's like, tell him about the dream, tell him about the dream. Mm. And he changes in the moment and largely freestyles the entire I Have a Dream sequence mm. in that talk. But then if you track it back, you see that he'd actually been workshopping like lines and phrases right. and for that for a while in talks before that. So when, when you step up to freestyle, especially in the early days, is it like completely in the moment, free flowing? It's just coming out of you in real time? Or do you feel like you're also drawing on like bits and pieces that you've worked out and figuring out how to slide them in, integrate them, move in and out of it? I mean, you're absolutely doing bits and pieces, yeah. but you also have complete discovery and complete creation in the moment. So uh, both are intertwining simultaneously. And it's a beautiful experience, you know? And th that was really something that I needed to put me in the moment because there were so many things that I had no other outlet for. And it was the first thing that I really fell in love with. Yeah. Was it a gradual evolution or do you remember a moment, a battle, something that happened where something you said, this? Like this, this is it, at least for the, for that window. I remember when I was 15, I snuck into a club and, uh, you know, I was with my friends and stuff and there was like a battle happening on stage and somehow I got involved and there was like 250 people, 300 people in the club and I won the battle like had, on stage. Had you ever been on stage before that? That was the first time that I was on stage battling somebody. I had definitely battled people in ciphers and different things like that. But that was the first time that I got an audience's reaction. 
And so to win, I remember it was like two rounds back and forth and, you know, to win and to have the crowd react to what I was creating was unlike anything I had ever felt. And I felt empowered in ways that I think at the time I didn't feel empowered at all in my life. So it was an important moment. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, um, there's a sense of external validation that I think, especially we see, we tend to seek a lot more when we're younger. Yeah. And when you first feel that in your teens, you know, like knowing that you feel like you're developing chops and having something good from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And then when, when 250 people validate and they're like, yeah, like this is something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I would imagine that would be incredibly powerful, but also at the same time, does that flip a switch where you start to seek not just the outlet and the expressions or like those moments of flow to make you okay with the state of your life, but also does that start to in, interject this notion of, I need more of that from the outside in? You know, not at that time, but later, you know, that didn't happen immediately, but eventually if you seek anything externally for your sense of identity, you're going to get in trouble. I mean, it's just a part of the process. And as an artist, when you start creating for other people, you co-opt your own voice. That's why I don't try to strategize inspiration. You know, inspiration doesn't come from manipulation. It comes from space. True inspiration is something that moves through you. You know, so I feel like I'm the vehicle and the obstacle for my poetry at this point. Tell me more about that. I think it comes through my experiences and my thoughts and my emotions, but ultimately I have to get out of the way for the poem to show up. So always if I start in a place that's true, the rest of the poem will almost write itself as long as I get an, uh, give it enough time and space. But sometimes I'll be writing, for example, and I'll write something that I know is dope and I'll be like, oh, that's dope, but it's not right. It's not really what the poem wants to say. And so then I go back to the place where it was right, you know, and then I, I go again from there because ultimately it's, it's not really about me. Yeah. Is that a gut feeling for you or is there something, is there a process where you can kind of distinguish those two things? I think that's intuition. Yeah. You know, it's like, I have to feel through it. That's why, I mean, if I wasn't there, the poem wouldn't be created. So, you know, I'm definitely a part of the process, Yeah. but I don't think that, you know, I'm more important than the piece of art that I'm creating in the moment. And ultimately, I think the art is more important than the artist because it can last longer. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, though, because when you sort of have that process, and like the gut check, it's almost like I think about Buddhism. It's like right action. You know, mm -hmm. where you, there's, a, there's a sense that, yes, I can do this. And, and yes, it, it may well work. People do this in business all the time. Yeah, I can market this way. I can do this. I can build this and I can sell it and I can make money. Mm -hmm. But then there's something inside that says, but this is not right action. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes that switch doesn't get flipped until this thing that you've created actually goes out into the world and people start to react with it. And it's that moment, even if they're accepting it, where something in you says, it's not right. Um, do you have an example for that in your own life? Or what are you thinking of when you're saying that? What, what I think of is, um, is what uh, I see a lot of people do in the world of marketing, where you can mm -hmm. create a marketing experience that'll get people to buy stuff. Mm -hmm. But you know they don't need it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I see that happen a lot in the world of business and entrepreneurship and stuff like that. But I think it happens in the world of art too, mm -hmm. where you, know, you, you can kind of see where the zeitgeist is going. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of see what's happening in the market right now and create to it. And, you know, the part of you that says, I want to sustain myself with my arts is okay, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. But to a certain extent, you wonder if you're sneaking something by people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why I'm saying I don't want to strategize my inspiration yeah. because it really is a manipulation at that point. And I write for myself. You know, I look around and see you know, what moves me, what inspires me, what annoys me. And I start there. I don't look for inspiration. I find inspiration or maybe I'm just paying attention, you know? Yeah. 
along those lines, one of the things that you've written about really recently in your new book, Inquire Within, in fact, it kind of starts the book. I think it's the second poem in there. It's a poem about your dad. Yeah. Which I know in the past, you've been okay referencing very generally and saying that's not like I'm not ready to tell that story. And this is a poem where you kind of step into it in a big way. Are you open sharing that? Yeah, I am. But actually, I wrote that poem years ago. I would say that that's the oldest poem in the book. Interesting. But it was an aspirational poem at the time. And I would say that it's only in the last five years that I've kind of been able to embody it. And a lot of my poems are, you know, it's either purging or praying or both. And so when I'm writing, I'm talking to myself. And that's why I think I don't really strategize my inspiration in that way, because then I would be manipulating myself first before I even get to the audience. Yeah. You know, so if, if I'm able to explore something that I need to be reminded of, uh, it helps me get there quicker in my life. Before you dive in, what, what happens then that makes you say, okay, so I wrote this a long time ago and it was aspirational and it was largely for me. Like, mm-hmm. I just need to get this out. What happens that makes you say, okay, now it's actually time to make this public? Like, mm-hmm. to, because this becomes a conversation or this becomes at least a public statement. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes you okay with that? Like, where's, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, I have been performing it for a long time, yeah. but there's only certain audiences and situations where it makes sense. For the most part, I would use this for my poetry workshops. Mm. You know, because if you want people to be vulnerable, you have to lead by example. Yeah. You know, you can't ask someone to do something that you're not willing to do them yourself. It's actually irresponsible. So this was one of the poems that I would use. And then I would ask people to explore a moment that changed who they are in their life. Um, ultimately, this poem uh, called Father Time is about forgiveness. Uh, but it's also about the first time I met him, you know, which was when I was 15 years old. And so that was something that became a doorway for other people when I would do these workshops for them to delve into themselves and be willing to get up and share and be vulnerable from a place of strength. But other than that, there weren't a lot of, I mean, I get hired all over the country and the world to perform, but there's not a lot of environments where this poem made sense to share it. And then as I grew as a human being and as I changed, the meaning of the poem changed for me as well. And I learned some of the hidden messages that I had unconsciously put in there. Mm. Wanna share it with us? Sure, it's called Father Time. I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I didn't meet my dad until I was 15. I'd seen his photograph, but his image was sickening. A coward with a dick, but no balls to back it up. See, when he left me as a kid, I had cause for acting up. The funny thing about hate is the person you hate doesn't feel that hate. You feel that hate, but wait. The weight can be too much for a person to take, and personally I was hurt, so I just locked it away. I was angry all the time, and I didn't know why. I couldn't handle my own rage, so I would hide it inside, pretending everything was fine became a daily pastime. Time passed, and I started to believe in my own lies. I took it out on my mom because she raised me alone. The rage that I couldn't own had left me totally numb. It was like landmines in my mind that I didn't understand. So when the boy inside cried, the young man outside yelled. I think I learned about my masculinity from TV. The people weren't real, so I knew they couldn't leave me. I would sit there for hours right in front of the tube. The images that I saw were my depiction of truth. It was manhood in a box, and I bought into it. 
the censorship of anything inside of me that's sensitive. The sentence is a lifetime of tears suppressed in a stone face, an overblown ego they've distracted through a paper chase. Back when I was nine, I imagined in my mind that my father was a spy working for the FBI, and that's why he couldn't stop by right or drop a line. He was off saving our lives from the bad guys. But that was just a lie that I used to get by so that you wouldn't see the tears welling up in my eyes when you're rejected by the person that you're created by. You secretly feel like you don't have a right to your life. I thought if I confronted him, then it would make it all right. But since I couldn't forgive him, it just recycled my spite. I remember meeting him for the first time. Every time a person passed by, I would ask, Mom, is that him? I look a little like him, right? No? Oh. Well, what about that guy? And that was what it was like to meet the man that gave me my life. To shake his hand and look into his eyes. We talked till he apologized, then said our goodbyes. I walked away on my own, then I began to cry. Now, for years after that, I acted like it was all resolved. I told him what I thought, so I figured problems solved. But it just re-evolved. My insecurities were eating at my mental health. I took it out on the world because I hated myself. That's when I finally decided I needed some help. I opened up. I started writing and sharing about my past. I got honest with myself and started chipping at my mask. I looked into the mirror and confronted what I saw, accepting the reflection by embracing every flaw then directing the connection into breaking down the walls by reflecting the perfection of the God inside us all. I stopped focusing on everything that I had been hateful for and started focusing on everything I could be grateful for. And personally, there is a lot I can be thankful for. If pain is dragging you down, just cut the ankle cord. That's when the weight lifted and I really started living. It's when my hate shifted and I really started giving. It's when my fate twisted. It was like an ego exorcism. Your mind state can be the most powerful of prisons. My father never played catch with me or gave advice. But if nothing else, that man gave me my life. And that's enough for me, if that is all he could ever give. Because I'm appreciative for every day I get to live. And even though I don't need my dad to validate me, I thought that I should write this poem to thank him for creating me. Because every moment that we are alive is like a gift. And if that's not enough to forgive, then what is? I'm staring at the number wondering, Fashikal. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I pick the phone up. The dial tone begins to sing. I punch his number into it and it begins to ring, ring. Ring. Hello, Mike. Hey, man, it's, uh, it's Adam. Your son. (laughs) 
Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash wondery. That's hubspot.com slash wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Allbirds. Allbirds are shoes made from nature that make you feel good. So funny story. I literally walked out of my apartment today, hit the street and freaked out for just a second because I thought I had left my apartment with my slippers on, which by the way, I have done in the past because my feet felt so good. And then I looked down and I realized that I just had my Allbirds wool runners on. I love my Allbirds. They're shoes made from premium natural materials, making them something that you can feel good in and feel good about. Allbirds uppers, they're made from materials like ZQ certified merino wool, FSC certified eucalyptus fibers, and the shoe soles are made of this proprietary sweet foam material. It's the world's first carbon negative green EVA, and it's derived from sugarcane. Plus, Allbirds is a B Corp, which means the environment is actually a stakeholder in their business, which is pretty cool. With all that in mind, you can feel really confident knowing that you're wearing a product that is doing right by your feet and the planet Earth too. And with that sort of signature minimalist style, you look great running around town, meetings, working out, even kind of heading out to dinner. Allbirds shoes are made from natural materials. That means less of the bad stuff and more of the good stuff. That is naturally better. Find your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. How has the way you feel when you offer that changed over time? I would say there was more anger when I did it originally because I was still trying to achieve that in a cellular way. And now I feel really at peace with that story. And I think that that speaks to art because there's the creation of the art, which helps separate that story from your life if you're exploring something that was difficult. And it allows you to have a little bit more ownership over it rather than it having ownership over you. And then there's the sharing of it. And the sharing of it is the alchemy because you actually get a chance to say something that's real and true for you and to share your human experience and to have that mirror from the people that listen to it. And even if the circumstances are different, they understand because we're all going through this human experience together. Yeah, I mean, it's as you are offering, I mean, it's deeply moving also deeply personal. And at the same time, I'm sure for so many, um, creates the space for them to step into it with the unique circumstances of their life, if it calls them to. Yeah, It's interesting to me that this is something that you have offered, that you shared in a limited way, sort of like in public performance. I know you've done a lot of work in schools over the years also. Yeah. The thing like, I would imagine so many high schoolers, college age you know, yeah. students feel some variation of this where like this would be something that lands in a really powerful way when, especially when you're younger and you're really grappling with how do I put language to the things that I'm feeling and I'm having trouble letting out and sharing. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think art is so necessary in schools and it's really a travesty that they've started to remove funding all around our country because it's the thing that allows kids who feel powerless to find power. Um, and they can, of course, create on their own, but why not provide 
uh, space and structure for them to create in the schools. Um, a lot of my earlier workshops were uh, at a place called Art Share, uh, mm. Upward Bound, um, which is you know kids who are go- going to go into college for you know the first time anyone in their families. Uh, I had done juvenile places. I had done you know high schools and colleges and libraries, and I would just kind of provide this platform for kids to explore these stories and uh, and to get up and to be celebrated for these stories because. I will always create a space where there's only positive, constructive feedback. So there's really no judgment. And, uh, and it's really a beautiful experience to, to watch the spark in their eyes get turned on. All of these poems that I put into the book, Inquire Within, they were always living, breathing documents for me. And they would change as I would change. My experience of them would change. I would edit them in real time. And this is the first time that I've ever had a home for all of this art that I've created over the years. Um, and it's been a really, really beautiful process to finally have something that I can give away to people. Yeah, just sort of like ha- have them revisit it and move slowly through it. Um, yeah. And also I think when they, when you're offering it as a spoken word piece, yes, you can step into the ideas and the language, but it's still your voice they're hearing in their head. Right. Whereas when somebody reads it in a book, Maybe they've actually heard you perform the piece already, so to a certain extent, they're still hearing your voice, mm-hmm. but it's much more likely that they actually they're hearing their voice in their head right? and can probably take ownership of it on, in a different level. Which is more important to me. Yeah. You know, there is a completion in giving it away. And so this is a uh, almost like a death for me so that it can have new life for others. And it is full circle for me, finally, on all of these poems, because... I've lived with them for so long and it's time to give them away without me even having to be there. Yeah. I, I love what, the way you describe sort of creating a, a safe place for especially kids, young adults to sort of like explore and step into it. It sounds very similar to um, like what Kevin Cobell did in uh, Chicago with that. Yeah. yeah. Kevin's bomb. amazing, man. Yeah. He's an amazing poet and I love all the work that he's done. Yeah. And the whole, I think louder than bombs like 20 years old now, yeah. which is like taking generally high school and younger kids and just giving them this space to, mm-hmm. to get out what needs to get out. Um, stepping back into your path. So you start to basically on the local scene, create poetry, a lot of it in the context of hip hop and the context of battling in the early days. Um, you end up what 19, 20 years old um, in the poetry lounge yeah, and, and kind of fall into a group of people who to a certain extent, would, is it fair to say kind of like make that entire scene? <laughs> It's a I mean, for, for, for Los Angeles, yeah. you know, the Poetry Lounge was it. But I mean, there's the New Eurekan in New York. There's a lot right. of amazing, amazing of poetry yeah. lounges all around the country. Um, but this was the Poetry Lounge. Just tell, tell me about that moment, about like what was happening, that scene. Yeah, my friend literally gave me a flyer when I was 19. And he was like, we should go to this thing. And so I showed up and, you know, signed up on the list and, just basically got up and started doing my rapping acapella. And I never left, man. I, I came every single Tuesday night for like 14 years. I mean, first of all, I couldn't figure out how to monetize poetry, but the space was incredible. It was the first time I had ever seen people being celebrated for vulnerability in that way. Mm. In the same way that, you know, if somebody said a, a dope line in a battle rap, everyone would be like, oh, you know people were like, oh, when you said something real and true, when you were exploring political topics and all sorts of things like that. And when people were getting up and sharing stories, you know, about their lives that they might've never told anyone, they were being celebrated for that. And it was an awesome environment, man. The artists that were there, some of my best art experiences I've ever had is while being in the audience, watching other poets on stage, you know, at the lounge and elsewhere. And it was just, uh, I, I, I was addicted to it. And, yeah. and the community became like a family. Who, would, who was showing up there? I mean, Dante Bosco, uh, Sheehan, Poetry, and Jamel Hooper started it. But we had an amazing community, Sekou Andrews, you know, Natalie Patterson, Javon Johnson, Omari Hardwick. I mean, 
we were we were a tribe and still are i mean we've all kind of spread out but you know it was a situation where every single week you would come back and you would share something new and so you know you getting up and sharing that would inspire all of the other artists that were there to bring their best out and it's similar to you know playing sports or battling you know if if i used to battle somebody who was good i would just do barely enough to beat them but if i was battling somebody great they would bring out you know another gear for me and that whole community brought out another gear for me and i started exploring other concepts that i had never explored in my rhymes and ultimately i woke up one day and realized i was more of a poet than an mc mm. it's interesting we've we've actually had Seiko on the podcast a couple of years back yeah and, um and, and he shared the moment where because he started out more sort of like hip-hop rap also yeah and he and he shared there was this moment where you know when he started you know even on the poetry side it was syncopated it was on the beat and something clicked in his brain he said oh wait a minute like this actually doesn't have to be like that i right. can make it more freestyle i can flow i can just it can be more about the rhythm and the cadence of the language rather than a sort of like specific predefined beat and that was like an unlock moment for so much of what he did mm -hmm. sounds like you you experienced this, a bit of a similar evolution. Yeah, I mean, Seiko is one of my best friends. Yeah, I'm so stoked for him because he was just nominated for a spoken word Grammy. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Amazing. Michelle awesome. Obama beat him, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's that's huge for poetry in general. Yeah, uh, and he's an amazing amazing artist. When he first showed up on the scene, he really shifted things because he was doing things that nobody else would, were doing and that was what was so amazing about it is everyone had their own unique style and so you know if you got up and you were copying somebody else people would call you out for yeah, that shit, fast, you yeah. know and I, I don't know if i had that one moment of realization in terms of oh i can do anything i think it was more gradual for me you know my uh, becoming a poet was more incremental and accumulative over time um you know we won the national poetry slam championships and i was on hbo's deaf poetry jam and but i still considered myself a rapper the whole entire time and then uh something shifted but it was more gradual than it was immediate yeah was there a resistance to stepping into the identity of a capital p poet because was there any concern about like well how do I describe that? How do I own that identity in conversation with other people? Like, was there a social context to that that you resisted? Um, no, I mean, I was proud of being a poet as well. And I was super proud of my community, you know? I mean, we just like bonded. And I was so inspired and impressed by all of their art. So it's not that I felt, you know, I was shying away from the identity of being a poet. I think I was holding on to the identity of being a rapper more. You know, it was almost like I had decided to do this thing. And so I just wouldn't let go. And I think to your earlier question, if I'm being honest about validation, when it clicked over for me, where I started seeking validation, it wasn't as much in the writing as it was in the sharing. Mm. And so, or in the identity of being that thing. You know, and so that was something that I couldn't let go of. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book in a very different way, but uh, it's basically the difference between ideas and ideologies. And that ideas are tools that you can use in your life that will change as your truth and your experience changes, but ideologies become your identity. And if something is your identity, then if you let go of the ideology, you're letting go of who you are. I mean, it's a death. And that's fucking scary. So people don't do it. They'll just hold on. Yeah. And uh, I would say that's probably why it took me a long time is because I was wearing that story, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that distinction also. And I agree. I think it's when something becomes an identity level thing, mm -hmm. something needs to break in a substantial way before we'll shed it or step out of it. Yeah, it's usually has to be a traumatic experience. And yeah. sometimes even that doesn't work. But I mean, look, I could fucking wake up tomorrow and decide I don't want to be a poet anymore. I give myself that freedom. I mean, right now I am so unbelievably grateful and excited for what I do. You know, I have created a space where I get to express myself for a living. 
And I feel like I have infinite possibility in what I can write about. And so for me, that's really exciting. But I also never want to become a prisoner to my own choices. You know, I want to realize that, you know, me showing up here today isn't an obligation. This is a choice. So I want to enjoy being with you and connect and see what's here and be curious and enthusiastic. Uh, oftentimes people become a prisoner to their own choices. And then those choices become obligations and they can't tell the difference. Yeah, so true. Um, what, what is it? What is it about poetry is, is what I really want to ask. Um, there are so many ways to craft language, to mm -hmm. write and to, to offer them. I guess basically, probably the, the question underneath that is what is the difference between poetry and any other form of linguistic expression also? And then why does it, why is it different? Why do we feel it differently? And I, I know I'm asking you, it's almost like a metaphysical question <laughs> to a certain extent, but in your experience, like what, why do I hear like the words, why can you take an idea, a simple idea, convey it as, you know, just basic words and then sort of like in a offered in a more poetic way. Why, why do people, why does it land so profoundly differently in your mind? It's an interesting question. It's, it's a difficult one to answer. Yeah. I would say, uh, there's something about rhymes that make people lean in. You know, I, I could say something without a rhyme and people could be like, wow, that's really interesting. But if I say it with a rhyme, people are like, wow, that's profound. You know? And I think that there's something we're waiting for that rhyme internally. And so when we get it, it's familiar. You know, it's almost like we're anticipating what is going to come next. And there's a familiarity there uh, that allows it to land in a deeper way. I would say rhythm has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, the different ways that you can play with volume and emphasis when you're doing poetry. I think the silence is as important as the sound, you know, how you use silence and allow things to um, take their time with people so that they can reflect in a moment and then get immediately drawn back into the poem. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's many different ways, but I personally, it's not like I think that poetry is a better art form than anything else. I think it's just unique unto itself. Yeah, I, I feel like we just, we, there's something about it where we respond mm. in an interesting and different way. Um, you know, I, I've thought about it in the context of the structure and, you know, the, the actual content. But the third thing, and this is where it kind of circles back to what you said earlier, you know, like it's about the poem, not the poet. I'm curious about that. Because mm -hmm. to me, the third thing, yes, if you're, if you're reading it on the page, but when it's being delivered as a spoken word piece, mm -hmm. you know, there's a structure of it, there's the rhythm, there's the cadence, there's the content, but then there is the visceral felt energy of the person offering it. Yeah. That to me, that's a part, that is, that is a, a, an, an essential piece of the art Yeah. at the same time. Like you can't, when you extract that, maybe it's still powerful, but it's different. I was just in uh, India at, a Buddhist monastery and I was able to meet the Dalai Lama and uh, the Dalai Lama sat down and there was a small group of us and we all kind of like gathered around him like children. And the first thing he said, he put up his hand and he said, compassion. And then I literally didn't hear anything else he said because the way he said compassion was so profound for me because it's not always, you know, what's said or even how it's said, it's who says it and the experience that they're bringing to the words that they're using. And so I would say in the same way, you know, that's true with the poet that's speaking. But I would much rather listen to a poet that says something true than a poet that is great. Because great technically you know, you mean like great on a performative level? Yeah, because I mean, even with me, I mean, the performance gets in the way of the communication often. And I have to just re-remind myself to be present and to offer this. It's, it's an invitation when you're reading poetry. It's not a command. <laughs> 
I can't force anyone to listen or feel or think anything. I don't even particularly want my audience to walk away with anything other than whatever it is that they connect with because that's what they need most. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that the, the ultimate experience is not when you go to see somebody perform uh, poetry and you're awed by the poet, but when you become merged with the experience. Mm. And for That's that to a certain art. extent, right? It's like the poet, yes, they're, they're creating it, but they also have to vanish from it simultaneously, which is this weird duality. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's why it's, you know, the vehicle and the obstacle in the creation of it and then in the sharing of it. Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by ZipRecruiter. No matter how big or small your business is, finding amazing people to hire is really hard. Maybe the single biggest challenge. Actually, I know this firsthand as someone who has founded and grown a handful of my own businesses, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, it's fast, it's smart. A place where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com good. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invite them to apply to your job. So you can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and really focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com good. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-O-O-D, ZipRecruiter.com slash good, or just click the link in the show notes now. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Along the way, as you're developing your voice, doing the 14 years at the Poetry Lounge and starting to build a career, you know, part of what's going on in the background of your life is, okay, so developing these chops, it's stunning. This is a part of me and I have to support myself somehow in the world. Yeah. Um, so you also step it seems like you step back into the world of music. Um, you end up getting a, a publishing deal, mm -hmm. which allows you to then start writing songs yeah. um, for some really big names in the music business. Yeah. Um, and that allows you to support yourself. It gives you a certain amount of notoriety also. Interestingly, it feels like from the outside looking in that you almost like you stepped into music to give you a certain amount of higher level leverage to step back into poetry. Um, yeah, I mean, in I, a different place, in a different yeah, way. I, I would love to say that it was um, that well thought out. <laughs> it wasn't. It's like, some things just happen, man. Yeah, man. I was fucking desperate. You know, I, I couldn't figure out how to make any money. And I had a mentor uh, named Ross Hogarth, who's an incredible engineer and producer. And he connected me with uh, Rock Mafia, which is, uh, you know, a production team, a record label, studios, and uh, they really are a one-stop, you know, shop for everything. And they're incredible artists. And so uh, they came to one of my poetry shows. You know, I was putting on public poetry shows and still do. And, uh, and then we came in for a meeting and I ended up writing a song that Miley Cyrus cut with them and then they gave me the publishing deal after that and that was really a financial foundation for me ultimately to consciously get back into poetry and to choose it because i hadn't had any luck in figuring out how to monetize it i mean the the genre was and still is emerging um you know like i really believe that in the next five years poetry is going to enter into popular culture in a new way and change the way that people perceive uh, what it is and what it can be. And uh, I think poets will have their own sitcoms and be on the cover of magazines and be performing on late night. And that'll be, you know, something normal. And I think right now, more than ever, people need the simplicity of someone just speaking about something that's meaningful to them so that they can feel connected uh, to another human being. Yeah. Is that why you feel like it's about to emerge or is it what makes you so convicted 
that this is about to be the next thing, that this is about to sort of like really emerge in a much broader way in the public consciousness? I mean, look, you know, uh, technology is an incredible thing. You know, what we're doing right now, there's no way to really quantify what happens, how people are impacted or influenced when you just put something out into the world. Everyone can use their voice differently. It's really beautiful. And simultaneously, it's really isolating. And, you know, people feel more alone than they've ever felt and more lonely as well. Um, and so I think with all the things that are going on in the world right now and consumerism that is really just like this mass distraction machine that's constantly trying to take from you, you know, like take your energy, take your attention, take your information, take your likes, take your love. I think that there's a difference between technology being used as a tool and the tool using you. And so I think in many ways, the tool is kind of using us right now. And uh, people are looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. And I think that poetry provides that very naturally. And I also think that when poets get up and they, they speak these stories, you know, people not only feel less alone, but it, it gives them empathy. And empathy is certainly what the world needs most right now. Yeah. When you strip it down to the language also, I feel like there's a simplicity. Mm -hmm. There's a, like, there's something very analog to me about poetry, even when it's delivered through technology mm -hmm. that cuts past the defenses, cuts past like the barrier that we tend to all put up. And somehow like that gets dropped and we start to feel again. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's really powerful. And, and I, I feel like we're in this moment in time where we kind of need that. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we really need that. And there's some crazy, crazy shit going on in the world, man. You know, I mean, I watched the State of the Union the other night. And, <laughs> I mean, it's surreal. It was a reality show. Yeah. And, uh, and he didn't mention climate change once, by the way, which is the biggest existential threat to humanity. So I have a piece about that in the book called One Little Dot. And uh, I've been sharing that as much as possible as well. But um, yeah, couldn't agree more. You also have, you mentioned it earlier, workshops. Um, so part of it is, is, yes, you think this is going to be the next thing, but also you're creating the structure to bring people into it. Because I think a lot of times people will, you know, like they'll, they'll listen to the piece that you offered in the beginning mm -hmm. and, they'll, and they'll be deeply moved. And then the next thing that pops into your head is, I wish I could do that. And then the next thing that pops into your head is I never will be able to. And so part of your mission is not just to create and to offer language, but also to create experiences that let people know, no, actually it's in there and you can, and this is how. Yeah. I mean, we're all storytellers. I mean, that's the history of humanity is sitting around a, a fire sharing stories and sharing the past so that it can be brought into the present and ultimately into the future. Um, and so we tell stories every single day, you know, to ourselves, to other people. And the only difference is intending it to be a poem and creating the space to write that poem and then creating the space to share that poem. So when I come in and do a workshop, that's really all I'm doing is I'm facilitating that space. Um, and I'm basically giving people prompts as a platform for them to explore through poetry, which is a genre that they would probably never use to explore anything other than maybe, you know, reading a poem here or there or listening to a poet here and there. But we're all poets because we're all storytellers and our voices need to be heard now more than ever. Yeah. When people show up to those workshops, mm -hmm. um, What's the average fear level when people step into a room? <laughs> well, I don't even really acknowledge that, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's imaginary or the fear is not imaginary, but the reality of the fear nah. actually doing anything is completely fucking imaginary, you know? So as I said earlier, I just have to lead by example. And if I lead by example and I set the space, people always step into it because People are desperate to express themselves. 
You know, they feel so repressed in their everyday lives. A lot of people do at least. And this is just an opportunity to have a trampoline to something new. And so it's an honor for me to provide that space. And I also think in general, we're so afraid of our fears. And it's okay to be afraid of something. It's not okay to allow that fear to dictate how you live your life. Or it is okay, but not for me. You know, that's not how I want to live. Yeah. I feel like we're also, a lot of us are, yes, we're afraid of our fears, but we're also even afraid of our thoughts. <laughs> we're afraid of our thoughts. Yeah. We're afraid of our pain, too. Right. And, and, and it, I feel like to a certain extent, we feel like if we memorialize it, either in writing or we, we share it with another person, mm -hmm. it becomes real. Whereas the reality is, no, it's always real. Yeah. And it's always felt. And the fact that there's no outlet for it, you know, actually makes it worse than if there is an outlet. So like when you create a safe space where I think this is part of like the beauty of a, the type of experience where you create it, there's a normalizing experience where yeah. it's like, okay, it's not like I'm standing up and sharing something and nobody else is when we're all in this together. Um, and you start to realize, oh, we're all, we've all got this stuff going on and we've got this thing that we've been stifling and now we're all putting words to it. It's like, we're not alone in it anymore. And maybe sharing it doesn't resolve the pain, but just knowing that you're not alone does something that helps. Yeah. I mean, when you feel isolated, then you feel like I'm the only person who feels this way. You know, and that's literally not true. Every single person has their own trauma, has their own stories, and it's better out than in. Because if it's inside of you, it can wind up manifesting into other things. It finds its ways to get out, you know, whether it's through traffic or it creates disease. And I think that there's a difference between exploring these things as a victim or exploring these things in a way that's empowering. And so I will always uh, create the space of empowerment for everyone. Um, I don't want anyone to walk away from a workshop feeling like they're a victim to their own experiences. I want them to feel like there's an op opportunity for transformation and alchemy. And so, you know, that's what happens time after time. And it's interesting, you know, people will come up to me and they'll be like, I've made major, major life decisions in the poetry workshops. You know, they've had these realizations. You know, just because you don't explore these things, as you said, doesn't mean that they don't exist. And so why not have the awareness to actually look at what you're thinking and look at what you're feeling so you have an opportunity to possibly make a different decision or at least know that you have the freedom to do so if you want to. Yeah, as you're saying that vision of Robin Williams playing the teacher in... Uh, mm. Um, Dead Poets Dead Society, Poet Society yeah. popped into my head where like, you know, like kid jumps up on the chair and like, you know, the sweaty tooth madman, like that line yeah. will always stick in my head where it's mm. like, there's a moment where you're just, something happens and somehow like everything starts to just burst out of you. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I wonder if like that moment also, the, once the valve gets placed in, like once you tap the valve, mm -hmm. it's really hard to seal that again. <laughs> Yeah, nor should you. I mean, right. you know, why, why walk around as a, you know, robotic adult? I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to act like this. I can't show too much emotion. I mean, you know, part of growth is play, you know, and it's being uncomfortable. And as you said, people are afraid of their thoughts and they're afraid of their pain. They're so afraid to feel their pain that they lock it inside of themselves and pretend that they don't have it. And, you know, why are we so fucking afraid of our pain, man? It's just pain. Let it move through you like rain and then it can wash away uh, rather than hold on to it and, and create more. Uh, you're somebody who's very curious about love. So we talked about pain. You're also really curious about love. It showed up the moment you walked in here <laughs> mm -hmm. when you looked at a picture and asked me how long I was with my wife and how long we were married. And then in conversation before we went on air. Well, because um, you had this beautiful memorial to the wedding, basically, yeah. like this 
these beautiful moments, you know, uh, and beautiful pictures. And so I immediately wanted to know what your experience has been because you've been with your wife for many years. Yeah. Um, do you have a deeper curiosity just about the nature and quality and access to this experience of love? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely curious about love. I'm definitely in love. Um, and you know, very, very happy with, uh, with my partner. I mean, we've been together two years, so, uh, we're still at the beginning stages of that, which is interesting to say, you know, when you get older, you're like two years is the beginning stages when you're younger, two years is an eternity, you know? Um, but we're still getting to know each other, you know, and yet I'm absolutely in love in every possible way. Uh, and learning much more about myself through through this process. Yeah, you shared. Um, I don't know. I don't remember when you put this up. A video of you sitting on a street. I think it was in Venice, actually. Maybe a couple years back. People are walking by, and you're like, "Hey, man, can I share a love poem with you?" Yeah, that was Abakenny. And everyone's ignoring you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it was just striking to me, like, here's a guy who's just saying, hey, can I have like two minutes of your time to just like share a poem about yeah. love? And everyone's like pretending you don't exist. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people in general don't have time, you know, they're going in the direction that they're going and they don't, they don't stop to look around, you know, to see uh, what's possible. And then I think people perceive poetry to be whatever they perceive poetry to be. And um, it's not always positive. Um, and so, you know, they miss what, what is possible. Meh. Um, one of the things that you come to, and I sense that this is not why you started, but it seems like you kind of like landed on this more recently is that... Um, there's something deeper that's driving you with poetry, which is like a bigger sense of purpose to shift human consciousness. When did that land for you? I think that for me, it starts with shifting my own consciousness. Mm. Um, and if I do that and I share it in a pure way, then I think it will naturally shift whoever listens um, in one direction or the other. And uh, that's why I always try to come back to um, hope and empowerment, you know. And I'm trying to be the best version of myself on a day-to-day -day basis with, you know, various degrees of success and failure. Um, so I'm definitely a work in process. I'm not a product. And I, I don't claim to have all of the answers, but uh, I'm going to keep asking questions and sharing my experiences. Yeah. You know, I was in a, uh, a thing one day, it was like a large talk and I was in the audience and it was Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle, both of whom I very much respect the work and content that they've put out into the world. But, you know, there was a lot of people there and they were asking questions afterwards. And, and so I raised my hand and they didn't call on me. But the question I was going to ask was, uh, when is the last time that you've gone through something in your personal life that's made you question one of your own teachings? And I think that's a really important question in this uh, culture of like hero worship, you know, where uh, we tend to look at other people like they have all the answers. And I think when you look at someone else like they have all the answers, their accomplishments can, instead of being inspiring to you, become almost discouraging because there's this sense of separation, you know? And the reality is, is we're all going through this human shit together, but we can share our experiences. We can share our truths. We can share our voices. And if we do that, I think we have an opportunity to evolve in the same direction. Mm, love it. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So mm. sitting in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up this phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, moment to moment, trying to be, uh, connected to whoever and wherever I am and being compassionate and having empathy for other people, uh, knowing that their experiences aren't necessarily my experiences, 
And uh, there are things that I can learn and things that I can teach with every person that I come across. Thank you. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S P A R K E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.